So the first one is from Exodus uh, 20, 14, that it says, you shall not commit adultery. And the next one is from 1 Corinthians 6, 13, 20, okay? It says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not met, meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, it's outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your, in your body. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here, Father Lord, as your church to, to hear from you, Father Lord. Holy Spirit, would you guide us, would you illuminate us today as, as we go through your word, Father Lord? Would you provide challenge Hope, would you allow us to, as we talk about this topic, to, to see, Father Lord, how you bless us with our bodies, and our bodies are the temple of you, Father Lord. Would you guide us this morning as we hear from Pastor Ryan? May your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're in a series of messages where we've been going through the Ten Commandments. And, and really the, the angle that we've been looking at through the Ten Commandments is the demands um, the, the demands, the fulfillment, and the requirement of the law of God. And so we've looked at, at, at really how Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He didn't come to abolish it, as he said, but he came to fulfill it and to give us power. And so what we see in the person and work of Jesus is that he is coupled with both truth, which is that, 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 that convicting nature of seeing that we don't line up completely with what God's intentions for us are, but also grace, the power to fulfill the law. And so... Uh, so as we, as, we, as we look at this, um, you know, I was thinking about just this idea of intimacy. I think it's the, the kind of the overarching, encompassing idea of, of, of really why the command is given to us is because of this idea of intimacy and how it's been distorted by sin. Most of us in this room will only have a handful of friends that we can experience deep life with or intimacy. You know, the type of people where, where your guard is down and you... Don't feel like you have to uh, perform in front of them. You can be yourself. You can be broken in front of them. And they still accept you and they still receive you. That's what intimacy is. And, and the scriptures tell us that this is the type of intimacy that God desires to have with us. That type of knowledge of us. That type of relationship with us. And, and Jesus comes and he reiterates it in John 15. He says, listen. You know, I, I abide in the Father, you abide in me, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And so God's intention, church, has always been to have an intimate relationship with us. He chose us, he sent Jesus for us, and, and heaven is to be in his perfect presence forever, this idea of intimacy. And, and because marriage is patterned after our relationship with God, Christ and the church, marriage is patterned after that, intimacy is what marriage is given for. So you have spiritual intimacy in that relationship where, where you are laid bare before your spouse if you're married and, 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 and you know one another well on the spiritual level. And, and I would suggest this, that 
all other forms of intimacy stem from spiritual intimacy. And, and physical intimacy is where the command is aimed today, is a signpost to the spiritual intimacy that we have with God through Christ. I mean, you think about this in, in the garden. Adam and Eve were created to live naked and unashamed before God and one another. But in, in the fall, the first thing that we notice is that there's shame. And it's around their physical intimacy, right? That, that's where the shame exists. God still knows everything about them. God still sees everything about them. But the shame is centered on their physical intimacy and their appearance and their identity with one another. And, and because all of us in this room have some type of, of sexual brokenness that, that we're going to lean into and delve into a little bit more, we feel tremendous shame around this idea. And my heart is that God would meet us in the middle of that. The tension that we need to lean into today, no matter what your marital status is this, is that we're, we're hardwired to long for this, what we're hardwired to long for in this world is intimacy, but often what we settle for is sex. And when you get those two wrong, you always experience brokenness. Sex flows from intimacy, not to intimacy. And so the big idea of where we're going today is this. Our intimacy with God through Jesus Christ has power to heal our sexually broken lives. And, and what I want to do is something a little bit different right now. So I just want to have a, a quick moment of prayer just to get us centered for God's word today. So let's pray together. Father, Lord, we just want to sit before you right now. We want to clear our minds, the things that are racing through them the conviction and guilt and shame that we feel even as I say these words, God. We pray that your Spirit would come and bring healing, that your Spirit would come and bring forgiveness and grace as we seek it, and conviction where it needs to be. Lord, we just give you this time together. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Four points I want to make around this, and it's this. Sex is a force for good in God's creation. Number two, brokenness of sexual sin is deeper than other sins. Number three, the only way to experience sexual purity is through Jesus Christ. And number four, we must walk in sexual purity no matter the cost. Let, let's dig in together. Sex is a force for good in God's creation. So there's a little book uh, of the Bible called the Song of Solomon that you probably don't spend too much time in. And uh, I'm going to remind you of what it says because I think when we think about the sexual revolution that exists in our culture, and we're tempted to think and focus on how bad the world has sexual brokenness, you know, how bad sex is in the world and how, how, how bad they've got it wrong. But I think the greater crime is of the church not seeing how good God has designed sex to be. We don't talk often about that. You don't hear many sermons preached on the Song of Solomon. You probably don't read it much. Let, let, let me, just, let me just delve in for a few verses to give you a little taste of what God has in mind for sex. Uh, some excerpts of so, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and, and, and chapter 5. Let him kiss me with kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers, and behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. And then, and then in uh, uh, chapter 5, it's, it's, the, it's the woman talking to the man, and, and, and she says this, I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet 
with dew, my locks with drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? It's because my beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open my beloved and my beloved and 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 my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the latch. I'm telling you, Nicholas Sparks has nothing on God. You know, 50 shades of whatever and sex in the city or what not they don't have anything on God. This is all God's idea. Philip Ryken says this in his book, Written in Stone, God's word is not pornographic, but it is unashamedly erotic. And the Song of Solomon would agree with that. Why? Because God made us this way. Throughout history, people have thought differently about physical intimacy. And as you can guess, there's always two ditches because there's always two ditches with me. On one side of the ditch, we've got this fear-driven uh, idea of sexuality, and, and frankly, this was the position of the church really until the Puritans came along, believe it or not, uh, especially in the, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and, and it was this idea that even though I have desires, I must suppress them at all costs because God is not interested in my sexual life. In fact, sexuality is a necessary evil for procreation. That's the way that the church saw sexuality. And I would, I would even say this, uh, you might have this view of, of your own sexual desires and drive. If, you have a, if you're in a relationship and maybe you got married, I've seen this before, where you were maybe sexually active before you got married, and then you carried in these ideas of condemnation and shame into your marriage, and all of a sudden it just wasn't what you thought it was going to be. You felt bad, you felt guilty for what your desires were because you had these ideas that the world shaped and molded inside of you and the condemnation that came upon your life, you haven't let Jesus deal with. Fear-driven sexuality. Then on the other side of the ditch, you've got pride-driven sexuality. And this would, is where the culture kind of leans today. Is, and it's this idea that, that sex is ultimate. Let's have it at all costs with no regard for God's design. It's sexual, it's, it's, it's sexual desires that maybe lead to spiritual intimacy. I don't know. Or maybe it's all off the table altogether. If my spouse cannot give me what I long for, I will look elsewhere because I am ultimate and my desires matter most. This position is to focus on the physical with no consideration of the spiritual. And the worst extreme of this, and I see it every day that I walk into Gwinnett County Schools to do mentoring, disconnects marriage from sexuality altogether. And there's a whole generation of people who have completely severed sex and marriage. And the consequences are unbelievably vast because of that. And then lastly, you've got this idea of what I'll call spirit-driven sexuality. And it's this middle ground in between the ditches where sex, we see sex as a force for good designed by God. Because there's nothing like sexual intimacy within the confines of a covenantal union between a husband and a wife. Because in it, there's this mutual submission of husband and wife, and it's expressed through unconditional, unashamed love from God for one another, expressed physically. That is God's plan and design for our sexuality within marriage. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says this, sex is the covenant cement of marriage. It holds everything together, the physical, the, the, the spiritual, 
the emotional, all of that comes together. So what's gone wrong? Why do we not see it like Song of Solomon? Why do we not hear God's voice and his pleasure in it for us? It's because sexual sin has overshadowed sexual delight. And the pain, shame, and consequences of sexual sin simply have a louder voice in our hearts and our lives than the Lord. And for some of us, it's because the struggle is ongoing. It's not just a past tense struggle. It's a very present tense struggle and maybe a future tense struggle. And, and if our view of sex and biblical sexuality leaves us feeling shame, pain, and guilt, we must understand that this is not God's design. This is not what he had intended for you in his kingdom. And that the Holy Spirit has power to heal our sexually broken lives. So let's just dig into this, this brokenness of sexual sin and, and how it's deeper, because this has always been a conflicting thing for me to understand. And th this is really why we have the command because adultery is dangerous, not just for the sake of our bodies, but for the sake of our marriages um, and our souls. And Jesus, Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, just like he does with nearly all the other commands, is, is he says this in, in verse 27, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery within his heart. So, so Jesus does what he always does, and he takes it from just the physical act of the sin he takes it to the heart that birthed the physical act of the sin. And he says it's a lustful intent in the heart that leads to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 presses us in to deal with this idea of our broken sexuality. I'll read it, uh, a few verses of this for us. Um, first he says this in 1 Corinthians 6.13, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 17, skipping down, he says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do, you, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Hear, the, hear the, the, the theme of intimacy here. God making his home in us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, so what is sexual brokenness today? I, I would do us no favors by just letting your mind wander. I'll mention a few things. It probably won't be that exhaustive, but my, my aim in doing this is to bring these things into the light for us as the church. First and foremost, there's this idea of adultery. And adultery is this. It means you've had an emotional or physical relationship with someone outside of your covenantal marriage with your spouse. So this includes uh, not just extramarital relationships, but it also includes premarital relationships. That is, that is a form of adultery or fornication. And so you know, maybe you're in here today and you've been through this. and Maybe it's super difficult for you to trust or you're dealing with the baggage of, of, of doing things that you, you never wanted to do before. Or maybe you're in here today and you're kind of on the verge of this right now. You're, you're, it, the book of Proverbs chapter 5 says, you know, if you're, you hold, it basically says you're, you're kind of crazy if you expect to hold fire close to your chest and not get burned by it. And he's talking about adultery. Maybe you're in here today and you're holding fire a little too close. 
and you're, you're thinking you're not going to get burned by that. Maybe here, here's a, a couple of diagnostic questions. Are, is there someone that you spend time with at work or go out with to lunch alone that's maybe of the, the opposite gender? Maybe there's an old high school fling that you've been messaging on, on Facebook or, or Twitter or texting. Or maybe you desire, maybe your desire for your spouse is dwindling as you spend time with others. If, if any of this is beginning to happen in you, what the scriptures would tell us to do is to flee. Not, not to negotiate, not to see how close you can get to the line. When you sense your heart starting to be thrilled within with someone other than your spouse, the scriptures say you've got to flee from that. Because you know, most marriages that go through an affair don't make it. And if they do, and I've had the privilege of, be, of, of meeting and being with some that have made it through that, it is an incredibly painful and difficult reconciliation process that goes much slower than you want it to. It's so difficult to trust. And so, so if you're in here and you're married today, I would just say, consider that like a warning. And for me, because here's the deal, none of us are above that. The moment that you think that you're above that, the enemy has a position in your life that he doesn't need to have. None of us are above this. There is no distance between this command and our hearts. If this has happened in your marriage, you need to know that God's grace is much bigger than you can imagine. And there's hope that this season too will pass. Lustful intent, he says. What is that? Well, it's, it's the heart level of where adultery or a, a sexual relationship outside of marriage comes from. And, and the biggest thing that we deal with today is the viewing of pornography. And here's the deal. In our current context, almost anything can be pornography when you set your mind to it. The mind is an idol factory, like Calvin said. But this also includes you know, sexual, sexual gratification through pornography. Anytime that, that, that sex happens alone, that's sin. It's not God's design. It's not what he has in mind for us. And our, our consciences will rationalize this all day long. I've never seen a marriage work where pornography is continu continuously present in the marriage. I've never seen that happen. And here's the deal. Statistics, here's what they show us about pornography. Is that it's not just a man problem. For far too long, we've said that this is just a men problem. This is just something that men deal with. And, and every time that we say that, a, a lady that, that deals with that same struggle feels further condemned and shame because she feels like, what in the world is wrong with me? Church, we've got to broaden this perspective of how this hits all of humanity. It's not just a man problem. It's a human problem. We all have lustful hearts. And the enemy loves to keep us in the darkness with this. And he wants us to believe that it's harmless. Friends, it's so destructive that st if statistics are correct, one-third of us in this room view pornography uh, nearly daily. And two-thirds of us are on it every month. And, and I don't say that to bring unwarranted condemnation to your life, but just to bring that into the light so that the Lord can give us grace and strength to deal with it. And, and this is what I hate most about it, is that we feel trapped and isolated in the darkness of it all. That is not God's plan for our life, to battle alone and to struggle in darkness. 
Another way, and this will be the last one here, another, another form of sexual brokenness is what I'll call sexual cravings outside of God's design. So this is a, a gay relationship, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual relationship. And again, this isn't exhaustive. But, but these are outside of God's good design for us. And, and, and as a culture, we're more aware of this, and it's celebrated more than ever before. And let me just say this. Um, if you struggle with this, it is possible to have these desires and not to sin. James tells us about that, and we're going to delve into that in a minute. In fact, I've got many friends who identify with and struggle with a same-sex attraction that are walking redemptively, whether they are single and celebrate, or whether they're married and they're walking through it and they're dealing with it. And, and we need to know that there's been for too long a phobia around this idea that, that people that struggle with the LGBTQ movement, that people are in that camp, are altogether different than other sexual sinners. I just view a little porn every once in a while, you might say, but at least I don't struggle with that. Guys, it is all the same thing in God's mind, in God's heart. And the more that the church comes around that idea and stops judging people who have different sexual sins, the more that we can see the light of the gospel come in. Because the bottom line is, is that we're all sinners who deserve hell because of our sexual sin. But Jesus Christ has the power to redeem us and to heal us of the brokenness that we struggle with. What, what, let me just give you a picture of what this could look like. Because more and more children are coming out and saying that they're gay or they're lesbian or they're bisexual. What would it look like to have a church that, that became, how do I say this, um, an open enough place where a kid could struggle with that and hear the truth of the gospel? That that's not God's design, but there's hope for you in it. What, what if children could, could talk about that, middle schoolers and high schoolers could talk about that in our community without us just immediately judging them? Instead of them, you know, running off in their 20s and saying, this is the way I'm going to live forever. What if through the wrestling and through the moments of temptation, they had a church that they could come around them and say, hey, let's walk through this together. Let's figure this out together. What would that look like for us to be that type of a place of grace? What would it look like to embrace sexual sinners and not just tolerate people? And here's the, the big thing about this is that that Paul says that sexual brokenness and sin affects us more deeply than other sins. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And this has been mysterious to me and, and evidently to every other commentator on the face of the planet. Because it's, 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 a, it's a mysterious thing that we don't understand fully. But, but what I think that this means is that it has, sexual sin has the potential not to just mess with our exterior life, not, not to just mess with our behaviors, but to mess with our actual identity, our interior life. Because Jesus has come to fill us with his presence. And, and nearly all sexual sin, you know, is, a, is an internal thing. It almost all, always stays inside of us. So Jesus doesn't come and say, stop having premarital sex and I'll save you. He doesn't say, get the porn off your phone and then you're fit for the kingdom. He doesn't say any of that. That's not been his approach. In fact, what did he do with the, 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 the naked woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8? Do you remember that story? It's crazy. She's caught in adultery. The Pharisees drug her out of the house, brought her to Jesus in the middle of the town, and, and basically said that, hey, the law says we should stone her. And Jesus says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. 
One by one, what do you see them doing? Peeling out. They're all sexual sinners. They're all broken beyond repair. And Jesus looks at her in the eyes and he says, he says to her, where'd they all go? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And, Jesus, and she says, no. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So it wasn't, hey, you can continue living in this brokenness. It was the fact that the only thing that will ever motivate you and I to be sexually pure and to follow God's design is God's love and God's grace in our hearts and our lives. This leads me to the third point here. The only way to experience sexual purity is through Jesus. So I once had this guy ask me, I was going through this, uh, like this, uh, it's, by the way, it's risky to share any illustrations in the sermon. You, re- you realize that, right? I once had this guy ask me, he said, um, we were at a conference together for church planners, and he said, um, <laughs> I wrote it down, it was so crazy. He said, are you aware of your sexual brokenness? Just a small group, round, round table discussion. Are you aware of your sexual brokenness, Ryan? <laughs> and I thought, who the heck does this guy think he is, right? This is not small talk. And he said, if you're not, you need to be, because this is where the enemy takes the church down. And as I've thought about that, I thought he was crazy in the moment, and I disregarded him. But after I've witnessed episode after episode after episode of not just pastors, but church folk alike, be deceived, I agree with him. If we care about our sexual, if, think about this, if we care about our sexual purity half as much as we cared about our job performance, what would our purity look like? What would God do in the midst of that as we fought the good fight of the faith? So if you're in here today and you're just kind of feeling like, oh man, when's the sermon going to be over? Let me give you some good news from 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to skip forward to verse 11 here. Paul's just went through this laundry list of sins, right? And, and here's what he says about all those. There are a bunch of sexual sins and other sins alike. He says this, and such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. In other words, this was all of you. This was some of you. You dealt with each one of these things. I know you did. The Corinthian church was such a mess, just like us. And, and he says this, you were these things, but you have been washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now, what do you notice about that passage? Everything that he's talking about is past tense. The work has already been done. It's kind of this snapshot event in the Greek that we see. The work's been done through faith. He says, you know, you were sanct- you, you, were, uh, you were washed. So what does that mean, to be washed? It means to be forgiven and eternally presented as pure. It carries these connotations that we read about in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where uh, The scriptures say this, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, though you are broken beyond repair, though you have blown it big time, though you have an adulterous heart, though you are sexually immoral, though even those sins, the ones that no one knows about, they should be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus Christ came to wash you and cleanse you of your brokenness. And I know that some of us don't believe that today. We don't feel that today. We wish we could feel that. We cannot walk in the strength of grace without the security that we are actually forgiven for those sins. You'll never be able to grow unless you are secure in Jesus Christ and his promise that he's washed us. That even though on our wedding day we weren't as pure as we wanted to be, or even though in our life now, in our thought life, and it sure doesn't seem like it, 
that you can be washed through Christ, presented as pure. He says this, you were sanctified. In other words, you are in fellowship with the living God who has power over every sin. You've been given power to be made holy by grace. Now, sanctification is usually this theological term that we talk about, the work of salvation. It's this kind of cooperative process where God fills us with the Holy Spirit, but we have to wrestle with it. But the way that he uses sanctification isn't, isn't like future and present tense, it's past tense. In other words, because you are in fellowship with God, you will be made pure. You will endure. The enemy will not have his way in you. You will be sanctified. And lastly, he says this, you were justified, meaning this, victorious over your sin. Yes, even your sexual sin. It means to be declared not guilty through faith in Christ. Though you can think and your, your mind is haunted by the things that you've gotten yourself into, God looks at you as a child and says you are not guilty. That Jesus Christ bore all of your sin, even your sexual sin, even your thoughts, even your lustful intent on the cross. I love what Mike Mason says in his work, uh, The Mystery of Marriage. He says this, Only love can drive out the constant threat of condemnation and rejection that otherwise haunts and spoils all experiences of intimacy. What will lead us to this type of life of purity? Only love. Only love. Not another internet filter. Not locking yourself in a room forever. Not throwing your TV out the window. Not another job. Not another state. Only love will lead you to where your heart desires to go. Be fully sanctified and precious in His sight. And then when we feel the unconditional love of God, even in our sexual brokenness, the haunts, as, as, as Mason says, the, the haunts and spoils of intimacy suddenly begin to fall away as we begin to live as God has intended us to live in Christ. Jesus is the only one that has power to free us from the horror and pain of our brokenness in this area. It's because He gave His body, gave His body, His perfectly pure body for our broken and sinful bodies. And He says, I've come and I've filled you with My Spirit. More of Me, less of you, so that you can walk this out and experience what I have in store for you. Lastly, we must walk in sexual integrity no matter the cost. Now, this isn't a charge to legalism. What this is, is a, a, is a hope and a desire that we would consider this very important in our walk with God. There's a story I came about about the, the church father Augustine uh, this week, and I love, to, I love to see that these like church fathers are like super sinful too, because it gives me like a little bit of hope, right? And, and, and the story goes like this, he encountered a woman on the street with once he had an affair with before coming to Christ, and, and she looked at him, she saw him, and he saw her, and, uh, and she said, Augustine, it is I! <laughs> and he said, I know, but it is not I! <laughs> you know, because sexual sin has a way of haunting us in a way that other sin doesn't. And that's what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 6. So what's a pathway to sexual integrity? Just two things here. The first one is this. We have to understand the pattern of sexual temptation. If you've got a Bible, I want you to flip open to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. James talks about this idea of temptation and the nature of it. 
He says this, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But here's how temptation happens. He says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, so the, 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 the narrative goes like this. Temptation will come from within. So it's not something outside of you that is making you sin sexually. It's not. It's something with inside of you. It's a heart condition that has not been fully redeemed by God. That, that is broken. That needs healing in God's sight. And our hearts, what they'll do when, when we're tempted, when, whenever we see something or we experience something that our simple hearts want more of, we begin this negotiating and bartering process with our flesh and with whatever's in front of us. And, and we say things, uh, we, there may be reasons that we get in these places, and maybe you even see patterns in your own life of when you are more prone to sexual sin. Maybe it's when you're tired, lonely, bored, frustrated, curious, overworked, anxious, could be many things, but no matter what, what we, what we, what we see is um, we're tempted to think that a different set of circumstances can save us. And what James assures us of is that will never happen. You can take everything out of your life, you could be married to another person, you could live in a different state, you could be in a monastery, but there's one thing you can't run away from, your own heart. So temptation will come from within. And then we will have to either flee from desire that comes up with it, from within or be consumed with it. So fleeing desire requires radical action. As Jesus talked about it in Matthew 5, I'm going to read this. This is the idea of kind of radical amputation. Listen to what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin... Cut it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members, your right hand, uh, than, than to, your whole body to be thrown into hell. The, the, the principle is this. It takes radical amputation and action for the sake of purity. Fleeing does not, is not negotiating. It's not saying, well, maybe I'll get around to that next week. Uh, it, it doesn't say, I'll take that off my computer tomorrow, or at least I didn't go all the way with him or her, or, you know, this is the last time I promise God, right? That's the famous one. It doesn't say any of that. It says flee immediately. In fact, James says in another place, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. If you think that you're going to negotiate with the devil and win, you are wrong. He is witty. He is shrewd. He is a serpent. He is the father of lies, the accuser of the brethren. You will not win. And Jesus knows this. We've got to treat it like cancer to get, get it out of us immediately. And if we don't do that, we'll be consumed by desires, James says. Our desires will give birth. And when they give birth, we'll get what we wanted and we'll hate what we got. That's what happens with it every single time. The shame and the guilt will be poured on more and more and more and more. The next thing that we need to see about this is that we've got to let light into the struggle. And this is where I'll land the plane today. I would... I would proposed because we've not let the light of the gospel shine into that spot of our hearts and lives, we continue to walk in this unforgiveness and shame. All of the things that Jesus came to do, those things don't hit our heart because we continue to walk in the darkness. 
Listen to what 1 John 1, 7 says. He says, if we, if we walk in the light, it's a conditional statement. If you will walk in the light, if you will receive what Jesus has done for you. Now, he has to give us the power and the grace to receive it. But then we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul said in Philippians 2. If we will walk in the light as he is in the light, if we'll abide in him, we'll have fellowship with God and with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's only one place that Christians live in the darkness above all others, and it's this one. We are convinced that if we experience enough personal guilt and shame, that it might actually change us. It might motivate us not to sin. But here's the deal. We are leaving our most powerful ally, the person of the Holy Spirit, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. We are saying, ah, I don't really need that to overcome this struggle when we live in the darkness. When we continue to walk in the power of that darkness. And, and what we see is that the enemy has no power in light. His only power is in darkness in your life. So what's this involved? How do we walk in the light as he's in the light, have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all? So what does that look like? It involves having a community around you, his body, the church, that walks with you in this. There have been seasons in discipling relationships where maybe one guy has kind of just went for it and told us where he was really at. Maybe in your group, maybe one girl kind of went for it, and it just kind of opens the whole thing up, and you realize that everybody's dealing with the same thing. Will you have the boldness to walk into the healing power of the light of the gospel with your sexual sin? Because Jesus promises to purify us and to cleanse us if we will do that. James says this in James 5.17, Therefore confess, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Anybody that I've ever known that struggles with sexual sin, like we all do, wants healing. You just want it to be gone. You do anything not to deal with that anymore. The Scripture gives us a clear path to that, to let light in through walking in community through this. Now, I get this. This is like super scary, like the scariest thing you might ever do in your life. But the Holy Spirit works through the church. Will you have the boldness and courage to walk into community with your struggle? instead of staying in isolation with it. If you're married, talk to your spouse about sex. It's crazy. I mean, I think we, we think so many times that, you know, that we should have the same expectations and we, you know, we just trust nonverbal communication and somehow everybody's upset about it. What if we actually communicated the way that God's Word encourages us to communicate, even about those types of things? Christians are the only people on the earth who really get what sex is about, and yet we never let God speak into it. What would it look like you, for you to enter into more of that? You may think it's impossible to ever have victory in this area, but Jesus has promised to give us the healing, cleansing power of the gospel if we'll walk in the light. Because our intimacy with God through Jesus Christ has the power to heal our sexually broken lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that your word is full of grace and it's full of truth. Lord, the truth stings when it hits us at times. Lord, I pray that you would, you would grant faith, the gift of faith today, to believe the words of the scriptures and to turn to you in this and to stop walking in the darkness in the enemy's domain.
Lord, we're all super broken in this area, and our longing is to be set free. And that's the thing that Jesus came to do. So would you free us, Jesus? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.